Welcome to the Short Fuse podcast produced by Elizabeth Howard and distributed by the Arts Fuse, the online journal of arts commentary and criticism. Our conversations are with artists, writers, musicians, and others whose work reveals our communities through their lens and stirs us to seek change. James Baldwin said, artists are here to disturb the peace. I'm Elizabeth Howard, your host. can a public art project bring into a community? In this episode of The Short Fuse, I'm exploring this question in a conversation with Stephanie Dockery, who leads Bloomberg Philanthropy's Public Art Challenge, a national competition that supports temporary public art projects in cities throughout the United States. Stephanie also manages Bloomberg Connects, a portfolio of grants to support technology development at cultural institutions internationally and partnerships for Bloomberg Connects Mobile a portfolio app developed by Bloomberg Philanthropies that partners with arts institutions to deliver content to global audiences. Stephanie, it's lovely to be with you today. So wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. You are in a position that most people would envy. What were your passions that led you into studying art and eventually to Bloomberg Philanthropies? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I really credit my parents for taking me to museums and theater and dance performances when I was growing up in Atlanta. So I spent a lot of time at the High Museum. Ah, lovely. And I studied dance myself all for 15 years growing up. So I think it was inside of me. Um, And then I thought of the arts as an actual passion and something that I was interested in exploring seriously when I took my first art history class um, my senior year of high school. And I continued on with that in college. And I just kept going. Mm, Well, it's wonderful to have you leading this initiative, Stephanie. Recognizing that as citizens, we face perilous challenges, climate change and environmental issues, food insecurity, gun violence, systemic racism, to name just a few. A few years ago, I worked with the late Dr. Benjamin Barber, who wrote a book entitled, If Mayors Ruled the World. And in this highly provocative and original book, he posited that the problems we face are so challenging and overwhelming that they're too much actually for the nation state. Rather, it's the mayors who run cities who are in a better position to be able to make change because cities share unique qualities of pragmatism, civic trust participation, indifference to borders and sovereignty. And and it provides an opportunity for exactly what Bloomberg Philanthropies is doing for networking, creativity, innovation, and cooperation. So I know that the Bloomberg Public Art Challenge was announced in 2014. And then and there have been about nine projects in 11 cities. Can you give us a little history, Stephanie, of how this unfolded? Absolutely. Um, what you you just said is certainly the ethos of the foundation. It's Mike Bloomberg's philanthropy. And he, of course, was mayor of New York for 12 years. Mm, we loved having him as mayor. <laughs> <laughs> Many of my colleagues worked in the Bloomberg administration um, through our CEO's time as the first deputy mayor. We did our 500 temporary public art projects throughout the five boroughs, which really started with Jean-Claude and Christos, The Gates, if you remember that in 2005, 
Um, I myself was a student at the time and came to New York and visited. So it's really exciting to be on this side of the journey where that launched, you know, the administration, now the foundation's deep commitment to public art. And it was really the first time where in a post 9-11 New York, people were speaking very positively about New York City. The city was enhanced creatively, tourism was pouring and people were excited about the city and it re, you know, you looked at Central Park in a completely different way. You experienced the park and public realm in a different way. Um, and it's it's a lot of that ethos that we do with projects of all scales, you know, large and small. Our inaugural public art challenge, as you said, was announced in 2014. And we worked with Spartanburg, South Carolina, Gary, Indiana, Los Angeles, California. And of course, our projects in, um, I say Gary, Indiana. Albany's connected in Troy and the capital region with a variety of types of public art projects. But um, one thing we foster is that there's deep mayoral engagement, public-private partnerships, and all of the public artworks are temporary, which I think always sparks and infuses a space with a lot of excitement. Something about a temporary nature of art gives it this uh, event-like experience like you have to go see it and because it's uh, a launch like people are coming for a specific small period of time it's really good to have collaborative partnerships to have people working together to make these things happen whether that's within intra-city government um, with nonprofit partners community residents faith-based organizations you know the partners who are typically around the sites or in the city who are going to work together and make these things happen and even though the projects themselves are temporary, we hope that you know all of these partnerships are really unique and people are working together for the first time in this way you know, to create an art project. And it's a million dollar grant, so people are very motivated to create these great experiences for their communities. Um, and then after the public art projects are finished, it's great to see these entities continue to work together in different ways. And they all now know each other. Our second round was launched in 2018, and we worked in Camden, New Jersey, Jackson, Mississippi, Tulsa, Oklahoma, Anchorage, Alaska, and Coral Springs, Parkland, Florida, um, and took a lot of the learnings from the first round. So we're in a, an exciting moment right now where we just announced the third round, and we work with these cities over a two-year period. So there's a lot of deep engagement. You know, we're visiting the spaces, we're having weekly calls with the teams. We really have created a program where we're with them every step of the way and walking them through success. I had forgotten about the Gates project. I still have an archival box with photographs and a little piece of orange. Yes. <laughs> it was magical. It absolutely transformed the city. It snowed in the middle of it and people got up early. I think it was on a weekend morning. And I remember walking up to the north end of the park and here are these orange, beautiful orange kind of banners and this white snow. It was absolutely beautiful. And it just magical. It made people, it was magical. It was enchanting and it, and it was open to all. And I think that's one of the things I set up a reading program in a community in New Hampshire during the pandemic. And one of the things that we did is we had 
the police chief and and the mayor and actually Senator Maggie Hassan. We had students and firemen. It's such a way to bring people together. Absolutely. Yeah. And I noticed that I love the Astor Gates. He was in the we had a wonderful project in the Grief and Grievance show exhibition at the New Museum and then at the um, uh, exhibition for Brianna Taylor in Louisville. He has a show up right now at the New Museum, Young Lords and Their Traces. Yeah, he's an interdisciplinary artist that's brought together so many things and opened up culture. Well, there were two projects that I particularly wanted to talk about with you. And one was the Temple of Time at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, where, of course, the the school shooting took place um, on February 14th in 2019. I had not known that actually Marjorie Stoneman Douglas died when she was 108 years old. She was a journalist, author, woman suffragette advocate and mm-hmm. conservationist who practically She's saved the, yeah, yeah. the Everglades. <laughs> and I thought her spirit, I'm sure she was just there with you, but perhaps you can tell us a little bit about the Temple of Time and that project. So she, she, she was brought up many times um, when I was there. Like I mentioned, we're really lucky to work closely with all of these partners. They're also brilliant and creative and tenacious in their own ways and just working together without trying to get any glory just to make extraordinary things happen for their community. And at the one-year anniversary of the horrific shooting, the Temple of Time went up. The shooting was 2018, and afterwards, the mayors came together. The mayor of Coral Springs and Parkland at the time thought, um, you know, this incredibly devastating event, how can we make repair? How can we bring these two cities together? The, they felt that their community had lost a sense of trust in one another. Right before the shooting, uh, an article had come out ranking cities and Parkland was voted the most safe city in America. So there was just a feeling of lack of trust in not knowing who their neighbors were. And so the thought was that these two cities would come together as both the student body of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas is made up of Parkland and Coral Springs. And many of the city services actually are in Coral Springs, uh, the first responders uh, who came to the scene. They're operated by the city of Coral Springs. And they came together to, A, you know, be a city over 30,000. We work with cities of 30,000. But also to come together and show the spirit that we are two cities united and we want to bring our populations back together. We worked with a, their, their project team was consisted of these two city mayors and a curator who brought in five artists for participatory art projects that worked very closely with the community. Um, and the Coral Springs Museum of Arts Healing with Art program, which was a program that was already embedded in the museum that served veterans. And quickly on the day of the shooting, people came to the museum as a safe space, a place of refuge. They had food, they had service animals, they had games for kids to just be a safe space and be a place where people could find some level of normalcy and sanity. 
And so that program um, and their, their art therapist was an incredible partner in working with the artists and creating workshops throughout the project to work with community and provide a space for them to be able to talk about the things that have happened to them, how they were feeling post, post-shooting and provide these therapeutic services that we, you know, as a, society, as a society, people often don't talk about what is on their mind and what is ailing them. And so they wanted to embed that into the project. And then David Best, he was the first of the five artist projects and he does healing temples around the world. He's really well known for a lot of work he has done at Burning Man. And he works with this incredible team called the Temple Crew. And uh, for this project, he brought uh, a subset of the Temple Crew to help him build. And they have all experienced, you know, tragedies in their own lives. They're incredibly emotionally sophisticated and sensitive. And there's a lot of sensitivity around a lot of the projects where families were changed forever. When you make a temple, what you do is you start off right at the very beginning with the idea of it being sacred. Building a physical structure that we call a temple is gonna be a vehicle for people to come in and celebrate the life of someone they've lost, address some of the anger, some of the pain. And at the end of three months, it will be ceremoniously set fire. They spoke to the residents about what they were doing. Everyone was invited to sessions at the museum, you know, in the evening when people were done with work and soccer and all of those great family things. And they were invited to hear all of the artists speak about the projects that they would be doing, but also to provide feedback and any concerns they had. And um, more than that, it was also a call for people to participate. Like, we're not just putting something down in your community. You are part of this process. This is for you. And because of that, they got a really extraordinary community engagement. And uh, a thousand people came out to help build the temple. And they were alongside the temple crew. Everyone had drills and hammers and hard hats. And they David Best brought out and paneled CNC laser cut pieces for the temple. So people were truly assembling them on site. And we found a site across from the current city hall that was former city hall, just an open space that had been somewhat abandoned. And the temple really illuminated the space that people drive by every single day on their way to work. And you just don't look at it, you know? That's one of the great things public art does is make you realize that there are these spaces around and illuminates them in a new way and reclaims public space, particularly vacant space that isn't being utilized. And we worked very closely with um, all city (laughs) departments and the first responders because not only did we want to build this temple and like put down electricity for lights so it was illuminated at night, they needed to create security around the temple and then after it was up for three months, um, and in that three-month period, people visited. They left mementos. They left notes to the loved ones who were lost. And then three months later, in the spirit of the healing temple, it was set ablaze and there was a, a, a bird. That was an incredible experience because the, the ethos behind it was when the temple 
is lit on fire and it burns down all of the pain and suffering that you put into the build it is released and it was to release take some of the pain of the community and to release it so it was incredibly emotional and there were 5000 people who came out to be part of it and it was really it really belonged to the community and you know people wanted the temple to stay up but it just it, it wasn't built to stay it was truly a temporary piece of nature and then it was the project that set off four other projects after it um, that were participatory in very different ways but it was found to be like a wonderful first project to bring people together and it really changed how that street looked for the three-month period it was up there's this beautiful non-denominational healing temple where you can go you can spend time they had yoga classes there were reading circles and just people really adapted it and used the temple as their space was their temple and that's that's what we want we want people to take ownership of these spaces and activate them in the ways that serve best serve them best serve their families and communities these projects are very much like dance it's not something that you can own it's not a painting it's not a piece of sculpture and it helps with cycles and cycles of loss and memory how important it is that we we have this we can remember. And it's important to remember to remember that if someone, if we've lost something and we've had this pain, that person or, or the, the joy of that is still with us, even though we, you know, we don't have to own things. I think that was just a perfect project. And well, look at the Vietnam Memorial, which was so controversial when it was first built. You go there and I know that they collect all the things that are left, but you look at the flowers and the teddy bears and the notes and the photographs, and it gives people an opportunity to go there and touch that wall and just feel that, you know, for a few moments, they're, they're kind of in, in connection. So impactful. To me, the Vietnam War Memorial is the definitive memorial growing up. To visit family in DC and you know, Myelin's memorial just made people rethink what a memorial looks like and how it serves the public. And something as simple as seeing all of the names written, it just illuminates the scale of the war. It's so beautiful. We were so lucky that she was able to do that. You know, she was a graduate student and it it's just incredible. <laughs> and there were so many people who were so opposed to not having the sort of traditional um, sculpture. And I, I, I would think that we've taken down so many monuments now that we, we kind of understand that it's better to build things that aren't as representational that, that everyone can, can be involved with. Yeah, but that, that's an interesting idea um, of people being opposed to things because there are certainly moments for a lot of projects that, you know, where people are opposed to them. It's something new question, you know, about intended money. And what we have seen with a lot of our projects is with deep community engagement and people feeling like they're part of the process. They really take ownership of them and people can be moved if it's if it's genuine, if they're genuinely part of the process to being really proud of the space and, you know, go from wanting something to not be there to actually wanting it to stay forever. 
So, so I, I think a lot of that can be changed in the process of, of a temporary or permanent piece going up. But that is an, also another reason why um, we work with temporary uh, it's very hard to get things approved while some of our projects have stayed up permanently because the city or the partners took on the funding and took over overseeing the spaces. Uh, the intent is for the projects to be temporary. And, and I think because you have such teams working on these projects, even in the application process, you know, which is certainly bringing together people who haven't worked together before and, and people start recognizing that these our projects have brought in money for economic development. They've, they've brought in volunteers in some cases, probably for this one and you know, thousands of people in one way or another or have volunteered or have been involved. And, and, and people have an opportunity through different partnerships to meet the artists and to work with the people, the craftspeople who are perhaps doing some of the building. And I, and I think it brings those people who at, at a time might have been um, not had a good relationship of working together, it brings them together. And yeah, just the past projects are two rounds have brought together almost 500 partnerships, which is pretty incredible. And $100 million in economic impact across yeah. the cities. And also, just as importantly, people have felt better about their city. They feel better about their neighborhood, their neighborhoods and their neighbors. There's actual positive impact of people having these art experiences and feeling more positively about the arts and seeing that the arts are bringing them together. That we're in such a moment in this country where people aren't speaking to one another, coming together, and something about the arts can really bring people together. And you know, there is a significant civic issue at the heart of all of our projects, whether it's climate change or gun violence or, you know, food equity. And maybe you're on the other side. Maybe you don't think these are important, but coming to this art experience gets you thinking about it um, and it invites you into the conversation in a way that perhaps a lecture would not or um, another a, another event in the public realm. Another project that I'd like to look at, Stephanie, is the one in Tulsa, the Black Wall Street Massacre of 1921, probably the most devastating outbreak of white violence against African-Americans. It leveled uh, the Black Wall Street business corridor in the Greenwood District of Tulsa. And there were, I've read, an estimated 191 business locations burned down, as well as churches, schools, hospital, library. Reportedly, 300 people killed, 714 wounded, um, over 1,200 homes destroyed, according to a report by the Red Cross in 1921. And yet, this history was buried. Yeah. And we have a we have a recording that we will that we will now play of from Joy. Makandashin, grandmother, was involved, and we'll let you listen. My name is Joy Makandashin. I am the great-granddaughter of Harriet and Howard Ector. They were the pillars and the builders of Black Wall Street. I am the granddaughter of Eldaris Makandashin. She was a survivor of the 1921 Tulsa Race Riot Massacre. She was nine years old at the time. 
I was uh, uh, working for the government in Los Angeles, and I was at my desk, and a phone call came. And, and one of my uh, colleagues asked, did I know an Eldars McCondishi? And I'm like, what? Do you know an Eldars McCondishi? And I'm like, yeah, that's my grandma. You know, what, what you, you know, know about my grandma? Because we're in Los Angeles. And, and they said, well, Miss Joy, you need to come to the front desk. And when I got to the front desk, there's my grandmother on the front page of the Los Angeles Times with the picture, with her picture. <laughs> And a picture of her, uh, her mother, a saint, a city's buried shame. And that was in 1999. And so luckily my dad worked for American Airlines, so we were on the first thing smoking to, to Tulsa. And that's when the questions flew. But by this time, it had already hit our, our frustration and our, and our anxiety was that our grandmother who held this story all these years, generations. Daddy standing there. Daddy, why you didn't, you know, well, I told you your grandma healing chicken coop. You know, what? <laughs> you know. <laughs> so we're amazed. They wanted to have a legacy. If they had blasted it up and told the big story, then they may not have lived. They would have been killed. So now, <laughs> 2021, a hundred years later, the granddaughter can do it. It's our watch. It's not for my great, my child. It's not for the old people. They've done their part. They did, they own, you know. It's my watch. So Stephanie, tell us what, what this project was in Greenwood in response to this situation. Yeah, so as you mentioned, we are at the centennial of the Tulsa Race Massacre and um, the time the mayor wanted to bring together the city and recognize that this history was unknown, but it was unknown by design. It was suppressed. Right, it was suppressed. Um, it, was, it was a buried history and it was one of the worst incidents of white violence among a Black community. When I first started going to Greenwood uh, five years ago, it was pretty quiet. And, you know, there was this feeling that the Black Wall Street area, for people who did not live there, they, they did not go to that neighborhood, which is unfortunate because it's like an incredible place with people. And to me, that's, that's very much where I spent all, if not, you know, most of my time in Tulsa. And so, the city of Tulsa, alongside the Tulsa Race Massacre Centennial Commission and the artist, MacArthur Award-winning artist, Rick Lowe, who is known through his work in Project Row Houses in Houston and has gone on to do a lot of incredible work, came together and wanted to figure out how to honor and commemorate the centennial. He went on a three-year-long community engagement journey, um, talking to residents of Greenwood, talking to people in the city, um, talking to universities, schools, businesses. There was no one, <laughs> there was not any group of people that he did not want to bring into this project and really quickly realized that because the history was so buried that 
you know, the city didn't need a memorial, they needed to have a conversation. And so as a response, he did an open call for local artists, uh, you know, people largely from Tulsa, but also from Oklahoma to come in and tell their stories honoring the past of Black Wall Street, the current Black Wall Street, and what the future of Black Wall Street is. What is what is that vision? Uh, and so artists told their stories and there were uh, a series of events and installations that told the story of Greenwood. And it was really presented as a biennial at the centennial of May 21, 2021, all the way through September. But most of the activity happening at the beginning of June and the end of May. And Joy McCondici's Century Walk was just so incredible. You know, people, she orchestrated it so people would walk along the railroad tracks and take the same steps that 100 years prior, Greenwood residents, her four mother, four father, took to escape firebombing, the decimation of this entire neighborhood. And there were drawings of many of the people who took that walk alongside the walk. So the, the history was very present. There was another artist, Maybelle Wallace, who did a Dark Town Strutters ball. There were these balls that happened uh, in 1921 and people were celebrating. There was a ball that was canceled because of the Black Wall Street massacre. And you know, she was, at the time, she was 93. It's like, I want to celebrate, but joy is important. You were a community who lived here and the massacre happened to us, but that, that is not who we are as a people. And so she wanted to show the joy of this incredible Black community. And so people dressed up in 1920s garb and had that style of music and came together. Um, there was also Mary Williams did an incredible um, parade down Greenwood Avenue, which spoke to Tulsa's history of parades, but also allowed people to honor the founder, O.W. Gurley, of Greenwood Avenue and the entire district. So, you know, 1920s-style floats and cars and performances uh, took place over the entire day. And it's just, there were a lot of like wonderfully celebratory moments, but also, you know, lots of levity and a lot of installations that really spoke to the history and how horrifying the events were and how people needed to come together to learn the history and make sure this never happens again. Not only was Greenwood destroyed from the massacre, but through underinvestment in the city, and then a 1950s, 1960s effort to redevelop and uh, provide urban renewal led to a highway being driven directly through the neighborhood. So what was already quite decimated and people came back to rebuild because of these efforts by the city, the community had been destroyed many times over. So another part of the project was for Rick to, and the artists that he worked with, was to reconnect Greenwood. And one exciting leave behind was that this highway 
was now developed into something called the Pathway of Hope, uh, which he and his our artistic partner, Walt, William Cordova, curated a series of photography by Don Eaton, which showed civil rights heroes and heroes of Tulsa. And again, reclaimed this space that originally decimated the neighborhood, but is now um, this gorgeous art-filled walkway that leads to the John Hope Franklin Reconciliation Park and, you know, required significant investment from the city and state to create. So there are a lot of leave-behind investments, both to that pathway to hope, the Greenwood Cultural Center, which is an incredible, long-standing cultural organization in Greenwood, and the city provided a lot of other infrastructure developments to the neighborhood as a result of the project. It's always exciting to see these art projects, which are valuable in and of themselves and meaningful, but they also create this excitement around these neighborhoods and allow people to get the investment in the neighborhoods that they need and deserve. These projects have so much meaning. How many applications do you receive when in these cycles? You must, you must receive hundreds. Yes, we um, received over 230 in the last cycle. And so it's really difficult to select uh, the winning projects. But the exciting thing is that that's over 230 cities that are now thinking about how they can do public art in their communities and how they can bring people together to create these projects. And what's really wonderful is like when these project partnership consortiums are developed when they go on to do, you know, projects that they can do at scale. And even if they don't do a project, they now know these different entities. Maybe maybe the transportation department didn't know their local museum before or faith-based organization or elementary school that they have brought in for this project. And so now there's communication channels that are now opened up and ways for people to come together and work better together in their city because they now have these new relationships that were forged. Uh, but there's a lot of work that is done in that application to think through, you know, who are the artists we want to bring on? What are the, you know, marketing communications avenues we want to have? What is the budget? And so once you get into that level of detail, there are a lot of people you have to talk to <laughs> to come mm-hmm. help you do these projects. You know, they they don't exist in a bubble. And so I think it's a huge point of pride that orchestrated within the mechanics of the project is people coming together to create projects. And so whether they create the project or not, they have come together and thought about this. And it really raises the profile of public art within a city. This this is something we all want to work towards because we're developing a public art project for this grant. And that's extraordinary that the arts can be given that positioning within a city government. That's why I I wanted to have this conversation with you, because I think if we could encourage all of those 243 people behind the the applications, if, if, you know, if those mayors can start seeing that there are others who might fund other philanthropists who will support artists, that that they start understanding how these, these projects really can change a community. I went to Louisville or Kentucky to the Speed Museum to see the Promise Witness Remembrance exhibition. And in downtown Louisville, people have come together 
and created this little um, memorial for Breonna Taylor. But they, as you said, they have not, they've never been able to get approval from the city to have this as a formal memorial. So what happens is every night at midnight, someone comes and takes it down. Oh, wow. It's a kind of a, a sign and her photograph and some flowers or something. But they literally, they have these volunteers. So stroke of midnight, they come, they take it away. And then in the morning, they bring it back <laughs> at nine o'clock or something. But, you know, it's so clear that this has taken time. And, and I know all cities have the regulations, but it's just that I think the more we share what you're doing with, with so many cities and they understand, because we, we see the, you know, Gwendolyn Brooks said the famous quote that's attributed to her work so often is she would say, if you wanted a poem, you only had to look out of the window. There was material always walking or running, fighting or screaming or singing. And one of the, the images that I keep in my mind of Ukraine, perhaps you recall seeing it, I, I believe it was in the Times, is this man playing a cello. Yes. And just playing this magnificent uh, classical music in the middle of all of this. And it just calms all of us down a little bit and, and takes away from thinking of, you know, the violence. And I have to believe that that it reaches other people as well. And arts are certainly a way to reclaim your life. Like the joy is what's supposed to be happening, not the destruction. So the deadline for the next round is February 15th. February 15th, 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. (laughs) So I assume that you will be very busy then for a while. How long how long does it take to go through these before you make when will you make the announcement, uh, Stephanie, of of the cities that have been selected? We will announce the finalists with close to late spring, early summer. And then the winners at the end of the summer. But we're excited to see how many applications we get. Yes. Uh, Really excited to get some good projects and support cities around the country. And I'm sure that all of these are on your website. So people can go to the Bloomberg Philanthropies website. Yes. Please go to publicartchallenge.bloomberg.org. The application is there. We did a live webinar to help people tactically, technically apply. Um, so there's great Q&A. Uh, there's FAQs. There's our past videos and press. It's a pretty robust website that will provide all of the materials. We're excited for people to apply and get interested and learn more about the program. And I will put that in our episode notes so people will have it. Well, I hope, Stephanie, that we can talk again when you've announced the, these projects. It would be wonderful to hear about the cities and then people can plan and visit some of these projects. Absolutely. Add to yes. the economic development of these cities. Yes, yes. We have, um, we're always very lucky to have really extraordinary partners. So we'd love to have you come out for, uh, <laughs> to see one of the projects. <laughs> All right. Well, Stephanie, thank you again. Very exciting projects and something that we, we, we certainly need right now to help bring people together in our country. 
Thank you so much. If you have enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe. You can connect with us through Elizabeth Howard at eh at elizabethhoward.com. You can find us on Spotify and on Apple, on Simplecast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Join us next time when we engage, explore, and ask questions.